Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor. I'm your host for this podcast, which delves into controversial topics, events, and issues in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Thank you guys all again for listening. If this is the first time uh, listening to the podcast, welcome. You can please check us out on Facebook, like the Facebook page. Uh, Check us out on the web at churchcontroversies.com. I have a blog up there and links to all the... Uh, all the podcasts, uh, subscribe to us on Anchor or Spotify or whatever platform you prefer. And uh, also subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, I have a YouTube channel where I put up all these these podcasts for everyone. So I want to thank everyone, all you, for your support. I really appreciate it. Um, please leave comments, especially if they're constructive. Um, you can leave nasty ones too. I won't answer them. <laughs> By the way, yeah, some people do. They obviously want to pick a fight. I just, I'll just ignore you. <laughs> but <laughs> it's my podcast. I'm not going to do that. But anyway, welcome. Thank you for your support, and welcome to this next episode, which is a sort of standalone episode um, called "Was Shakespeare Catholic?" And uh, this has been kind of on my mind lately. I, there's a local sort of Shakespeare festival where I live in the Kansas City area. I got to go see Romeo and Juliet this year. It was wonderful. I'm a big Shakespeare fan. And because my, you know, my wheelhouse, I studied, you know, my dissertation was in not exactly Tudor, a Tudor, it was Tudor Stuart England, mostly Stuart England, um, the Restoration period. But this is my wheelhouse. And so I've seen a lot lately, last several years, lots of popular articles in online Catholic magazines and stuff like this examining okay was Shakespeare Catholic and so I thought I'd take a stab at this myself talk about it and uh not to uh not to I'm I'm gonna hide the ball where we're going here is the answer to that question is we have no idea (laughs) if you mean his personal beliefs we simply don't know and we're probably never going to know (laughs) fun huh no actually it's a little more interesting than that I I say this because I'm I'm doing this podcast because some of these treatments popular treatments of this question I, I don't like for a variety of reasons, so um, and so, we're gonna do this this pod, this episode. Just gonna lay out the data, like the what evidence we have that he was actually Catholic, and talk about the background of this because explain why it's harder to tell in hearing his lifetime. You know, was someone Catholic? Were they Protestant? It was actually a fairly difficult thing, and we'll get to that in a moment. But anyway, let's start and talk about the evidence for his life. And we'll talk at the end, by the way, just, just how much does this question actually matter? Why are we talking about it? Partly because it's fun. I enjoy this. The stuff I do in this podcast tends to be really, it's controversial, so it tends to be really, you know, well, kind of heavy. And so this is a little lighter fare here, but I thought we'd talk about this. Anyway, let's talk about briefly just the basics of his life. And one of the things to know about Shakespeare, if you don't know anything about him, maybe you don't care. I don't know if you're listening to this. You probably don't. You won't listen to this if you don't care. But uh, he, we know he was born in Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire in England in 1564. He married Anne Hathaway at the age of 18, with whom he had three children, um, daughter Susanna and a couple of twins, Hamnet and Judith. We know that sometime between 1585 and 1592, uh, he began a career in London as an actor, writer, and um, part, eventually part owner of an of a actor's company called the Lord Chamberlain's Men although we don't know what he was doing in those years because we have no evidence for his life. And then after 1592, he comes into the record as a playwright. But we don't have a lot of evidence from him. We know that around age 49 or so, around 1613, he retires, probably moves back to Stratford upon Avon, then dies three years later in 1616. We know surprisingly little about him. And in fact, where most of the actual thought of him being Catholic comes from his personal ties or his personal associations. Uh, his father, uh, John Shakespeare, who preceded him, uh, married Mary Arden. I'll get to her in a second. In 1557, uh, already acquired property in Stratford-upon-Avon. And in 1556, while, and this, if you don't know this, um, oh boy, I better go back. I better explain this, actually. This will make this a little more meaningful. Uh, Henry VIII, of course, you know, began the English Reformation, breaking from uh, breaking from the papacy in 1532. Dies in 1547. From 1547 to 1553, his uh, son Edward VI. Well, actually, he's, it's it's ruled by you know uh, uh, a Lord Protector, a, a sort of appointed court appointed. For, he was too young; he only came of age a couple of years before he died. 
but it was ruled by Protestants and became much more thoroughly Protestant under under Edward VI. When he dies, his uh, eldest daughter Mary comes back. She uh, returns the kingdom to Catholicism, but she also dies uh, a few years later in 1558. And then that's when Elizabeth I took the throne and turned it finally back to a to a, uh, a Protestant uh, position, the Church of England. Although it still looked, she still retained bishops, she still retained certain things that made it look, at least to uh, hot Protestants, Puritans, that it wasn't it wasn't fully Protestant, but it was more or less a Protestant church. And um, I mention all this because John Shakespeare was actually elected. It sounds this sounds it sounds odd at first, but he was elected a uh, position of ale taster for Stratford upon Avon in 1556. I meant he he was responsible for testing, like you know hops and I guess all, all that stuff for for making ale, which was actually a gateway to other positions in the town: chamberlain, constable. I mention this because he began being elected to these offices while Mary Tudor was still was still the queen. So presumably, presumably he was on board with her regime. Presumably he was still Catholic by then. Uh, but he continues holding positions under Elizabeth. Uh, up under the uh, in 1568 becomes uh, high bailiff of Stratford upon Avon, basically a mayor in that period. However, later in his life, in 1592, he is accused. He cited for recusancy. And recusancy is the uh, the act because what happened was after Elizabeth became um, became the king, they made non-attendance at the Church of England ceremonies. You'd take communion once a year in the Church of England in order to avoid these fines for what they call recusancy. He recused himself from this supposedly in 1592, and. Um, he was a uh, he was was John Shakespeare a fairly successful businessman. He'd been a glover. He made gloves, but he also sold wool on the side. He owned several buildings in the town, uh, but his business fell on hard times in the 1570s. And a lot of people think suspect. In fact, in 1592, it actually I think it's in the documents that he's suspected of doing this because he's avoiding, you know, prosecution for debts. He eventually gets out of this in the last ten years of his life. He's fairly well off. But the point is, um that uh, there's a difference of opinion. Did he do this because, was he was he absenting himself from church because he was afraid to be, you know, uh, arrested for his debt problems? Or was he doing that out of religious conviction? Um, no one's really, that, as far as I can tell, there's no consensus as to whether this uh, is one way or the other. Then there's his mother, Mary Arden. We know uh, she came from a Catholic family um, uh, at Park Hall in Warwickshire. And I say this because... Um, Edward Arden, her cousin, was the head of the, uh, this uh, Park Hall Arden family, and he was an open recusant. The, the Ardens of Park Hall never, never hid the fact they rejected the newly established church. And in fact, Edward Arden, her, her cousin, uh, kept a priest named Hugh Hall uh, at his house disguised as a gardener. In the 1580s, in 1583 actually, his son-in-law, John Somerville, um, hatched a crazy plot to try to assassinate Elizabeth I, but he was arrested before it could be attempted. But in the aftermath of this, they started arresting other people. They arrested and then executed Edward Arden, Mary Arden's cousin. Uh, we're not even sure if he knew of this plan, but he got caught up in that. So this is one sort of piece of evidence for him, you know, being Catholic. Other pieces of evidence are sometimes thrown out. Um, his daughter, Susanna, his oldest daughter, um, was cited for recusancy from not attending Church of England services in 1606. And this is sometimes cited in, in that as part of this evidence for his Catholicism. On the other hand, though, this was following 1606 was the aftermath of the gunpowder plot. In 1605, a bunch of Catholic conspirators plotted to blow up Parliament, put a bunch of gunpowder under Parliament and blow it up. And so there was a general crackdown on recusancy and Catholics in general after that event. However, Susanna was never cited for recusancy before or after that. And later on, she actually married someone who was known for their for Protestantism. And in fact, all of William Shakespeare's children, um, we're talking about William Shakespeare here again now, the playwright, were baptized at the parish church of Holy Trinity in Stratford-upon-Avon, which was a Church of England. Um, church at that point had been taken over. And they all seem to have been raised as Protestants. We have no other evidence they weren't. And more than this, as far as I'm aware, we have no evidence of William Shakespeare taking communion in either the Church of England 
or at Catholic services. I say this because I'm, I'm, we don't know. We have so little evidence of the guy's life. I know that you know he lived in London for the most of the rest of his life after you know, 1592. As far as I'm, a, as I'm aware, he was never accused of recusancy while he was there. And so you would think, and this is just me guessing, you would think if he, if if he had done it, if he had actually recused himself, somebody would have noticed by then because he was a public figure. Public, uh, you know, people knew who he was. And we have no spiritual diaries left by Shakespeare, no testaments, nothing in his will. I don't even think we have any letters from him. Um, his will, there's almost nothing about his personal religious beliefs. Maybe the only thing, if you believe he wrote it, was his epitaph on his, on his, um, on his tombstone in the, the churchyard of, of Holy Trinity. Um, you know what? If you don't know how it reads, it reads like this: "Quote, good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust and close it here. Blessed be be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones." There's nothing. There's not a whole lot there. My point is, we do not have hardly any direct evidence about his own personal beliefs. There are some other. What we do have, besides those that the you know about his family, are anecdotes from contemporaries and from people later on. Most notably in 1611, the uh, the historian, who was a historian at the time, John Speed, linked Shakespeare with the Jesuit uh, priest Robert Parsons. Uh, he apparently referred to him uh, referred to him as quote this papist and his poet. Again, we have no idea if that's true or not, but that's that's that was the one link we kind of have between you know Shakespeare and the the famous Jesuit. Other things include you know. Um, uh, legal evidence, I'll give you an example. In 1610, the Court of Star Chamber, which is kind of, sort of, boy, it's a royal court. It's kind of hard to explain. I'll leave it at this. It's, it's, it's not like the Supreme Court, but it's a very powerful court that can prosecute for things like recusancy. And you had a bunch of these, uh, you had called before Star Chamber in 1610, a group of recusant actors, players, for performing miracle plays. Miracle plays are, of course, old Catholic, you know, uh, religious plays, along with two of Shakespeare's plays, Pericles and King Lear in Yorkshire. And in fact, a recusant Yorkshire gentleman was uh, convicted in that court for this. Again, uh, does that prove anything? We don't, it's hard to tell. Um, There's also the so-called Lost Years thesis regarding his life. Um... Yeah, I mentioned between the birth of his twins, Hamnet and Judith in 1585 and 1592, there's simply no record of him. There is an oral report from the 1660s uh, that was recorded in the 1660s that he had been a schoolmaster somewhere in the country. And, uh, in fact, in the 20th century, a couple of scholars, Oliver Baker in 1935 and E.K. Chambers in 1944, they first suggested that he was a schoolmaster in Lancashire probably working for a Catholic widow that lived there. It's called the Lost Years thesis in Shakespeare scholarship. Um, there was also later on uh, in the, in there are other things, um, you know, hearsay and speculation. Someone has unearthed the uh, visitor's register at the English College in Rome uh, during his lifetime. The English College, by the way, is the, uh, the seminary set up for English, English Catholics in Rome. And someone looking through the, the, the archives there found that in 1585, 87, 89, 1591, someone using assumed names that kind of sound like Shakespeare, like I'll read the Latin for you, make give you a good laugh, Guglielmus Clerca Stratfordiensis, William Clark of Stratford, that's one of the aliases. Some have suggested he actually went there. Again, there's no way of knowing. It's, it's, it's interesting, but that's, that's the way that these things kind of go. And then later on, again, another uh, you know, hearsay, sort of gossip, a, uh, an Anglican clergyman named uh, Richard Davies, was a rector in Gloucestershire, uh, in, in 1695, um, claimed that William Shakespeare, quote-unquote, died a papist. So stuff like this. The only other, and that's basically it for him, uh, at, except for one, one big piece of evidence, we're going to go through all this stuff here, which is the, the so-called spiritual testament of John Shakespeare. Now, what this is, is that a document was produced in 1757, was discovered, um, containing a Catholic, you know, statement of faith by John Shakespeare, at least signed by him, supposedly. 
in the rafters of his house uh, in Henley Street in Stratford upon Avon, 1757. A guy named John Jordan alleged to have found it. He, that's what he said. He said he found it, and he submitted a transcript of it uh, for publication in a magazine to a, a guy named Edmund Malone, who studied the original, uh, who had rejected it at first, but then he studied the original, Malone did, and printed it in 1790, in addition of Shakespeare's works he was publishing. Uh, along with the transcript of the, of the missing first page that uh, Jordan had not actually uh, given him. Uh, soon thereafter, however, by the mid-1790s, Malone had lost faith in this document. And the thing is, he had given him the original of this document, the original document, um, but Malone only printed the original and the uh, printed, excuse me, a transcription of it, and the original was lost. So all we have is this transcription by Malone. And for a long time, this guy, John Jordan, who originally produced it, was someone, by the way, who was trying to sort of drum up tourism to Stratford-upon-Avon. There was a lot of thought that he had made up the document totally. Uh, however, in the 1920s, this changed because, in 1923, a Spanish version of the same document, a, a statement which has the same sort of title, Last Will of the Soul, Made in Health for the Christians to Secure Himself from the Temptation of the Devil at the Hour of Death, was found. In fact, it was actually drawn up by St. Charles Borromeo, who died in 1585. This was discovered in the British Museum. And we know that some of the British Jesuit, English Jesuit missionaries of the 16th and 17th century, including Edmund Campion, visited Charles Borromeo in 1580. And in a letter, he asked for thousands of copies of this document to disseminate on his return to England. So we do know that this stuff got disseminated to the English. So uh, again, it means that this this document, this spiritual testament that got transcribed in 1790, probably is the ba based on something real. In fact, we know this because in 1966, another early print, a printed English uh, translation of this document was found and acquired, um, dating from 1638, which basically proves the document printed by Malone was genuine, except for the first page, which uh, again uh, he thought had been uh, Malone had been suspicious of. Um, as you can kind of see, that's it. That's all from the evidence. And in fact, most of what we just mentioned here is almost wholly, it's, it's, it's circumstantial. Uh, it's half of it's like hearsay and oral traditions. And uh, most direct things, of course, that testament, the problem is, of course, we don't know because the, the, the testament as transcribed had, you know, uh, supposed to have had John Shakespeare's initials in there. But of course, even if you prove that, you prove he was Catholic at a, at a certain time. You don't know he might have, you know, lost his faith a lot later on. Doesn't necessarily prove that Shakespeare had um, personal faith in the Catholic Church. Um, there's also, of course, evidence from the plays. This is the other thing people talk about when they talk about Shakespeare. Was he Catholic? And um, it's true. There's a lot of there are a lot of Catholic. There's Catholic imagery. There's use of you know allusions to Catholic practices. For the most part, I mean, he actually when he cites the Bible in his plays, he's citing the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was the Bible put together by English Protestant exiles from the reign of Queen Mary in the 1550s, who were in Geneva in the center of of Calvinist um, Protestantism in the 16th century. Uh, although some other, there have been other scholars who have argued that there, there's influence from the Douay-Rheims Bible in there as well, generally speaking, he cites most often from that Protestant Bible. Uh, and yet there are, as I said before, and this is the thing about the plays, he alludes to both Protestant and Catholic practices. But there are a lot of allusions to Catholic, Catholic things, beliefs, um, distinctive ones, like purgatory. This gets into Hamlet most famously, right? His father... You know, is you know walking the earth. That's that's a big image of purgatory, obviously. Ideas about things like penance and other particularly Catholic doctrines come into his plays. And there are many fig Catholic figures in his plays: uh, friars, priests. You know, the friar in in Romeo and Juliet, uh, occasionally priests. And what's striking about all of this is that all of these references, almost none of them are negative. Very few. The only one I can think of that might be a negative depiction of. Catholic clergy would be in Henry V. At the very beginning, you have a couple of bishops who uh, they're kind of warmongering. They want to they, they get Henry V to go to war with France, so they'll take his hands off the church. They look kind of cynical. That's about it. Everything else is either neutral or sort of positive when it's alluded to in his plays. 
it's a little more, uh, there's less evidence of this in his poetry, partly because his poetry, I mean, it's, it's poetry, first of all, but um, with maybe one exception, um, in uh, Sonnet 73, I'll read this to you, actually, to give you an idea of how it sounds. There's a reference to bare-ruined choirs, and there are a lot of people who think this refers to the, um, you know, the monasteries that have been destroyed by, um, by Henry VIII's regime. And so this is sort of a wistful, you know, lamenting for it. To a certain degree. I'll read this whole thing. So you can go find this on the internet. It's easy. But I'll read it to you just to give you it in context. But this is Sonnet 73 of William Shakespeare. Um, that time of year thou mayst be in me behold, when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day, after, as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire, that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. And you can kind of hear from that poem, it's, it's kind of an, it's, it's melancholy because it's talking about things dying. He's, talking about, he's t comparing his, his, his you know, inevitable death almost, that one passage, Bear Ruin Choirs, to the death of the monasteries. So um, it's not necessarily a happy recollection, but it does seem to be sympathetic with, you know, the sweet birds, be the monks, apparently. And there's a little bit of, there are some scholars who have argued there are Catholic codes embedded in the sonnets and other poems like The Phoenix and the Turtle. Come back to this in a second, the whole code thing. But that's it. That's the evidence for, for the plays and the poems and his life. And it's not much. And the thing, key thing you need to understand about this evidence here is that it's really equivocal. A lot of circumstantial stuff to suggest he had, he knew definitely knew about Catholicism, that he knew people who were Catholic, that he might have sympathized with them. And you could take that evidence as meaning, hey, he was a practicing Catholic. The problem is that same evidence can be used to support the opposite argument. That, yeah, just because it, it, it works both ways, the evidence does, is the problem. Now, I began this by, you know, talking about, you know, Catholic interest in the popular media and stuff like this. And, you know, how did this become an issue? How did this become a thing? Why did, you know, when did, we'll come back to this in a second. In fact, um, Catholics had been, you know, claiming or suspecting that he had been a Catholic since the 19th century at least. Uh, in the 19th century, you had, you know, people like uh, Chateaubriand, who was a French writer, you know, claimed that Shakespeare was a Catholic. There was a, uh, there was a, um, a British Catholic named Richard Simpson in the 1850s who uh, wrote a series of essays in the British Catholic journal, The Rambler, arguing that he, he was Catholic. Uh, you also had someone like, um, we, um, oh boy, uh, boy, Thomas Carlyle was a Scottish author who seemed to see in Shakespeare a representative of sort of medieval Catholicism in his plays. Uh, although it wasn't unanimous, there was actually a... Um, there was actually a gentleman in 1912 named um, um, uh, Herbert Thurston, who was a scholar, but also wrote an article on Shakespeare's religion for the old Catholic encyclopedia. You can find this at newadvent.org. They actually have the entire thing put up there. But there's an article there, and he goes through all the evidence for this stuff. And um, uh, he takes the opposite. He basically says that you can't know. Uh, it can never be settled this point of his personal faith. And didn't seem all that eager to, to embrace it. Um, the reason why is that Herbert Thurston talked about the quote-unquote loose morals in Shakespeare's sonnets. And what he means by loose morals is the fact that, well, there are clearly poems in the sonnets, which are love poems, erotic love poems, at least in the poem, addressed to a male. So there was this, you know, question about his sexuality. That, of course, off-putting for, uh, for a Victorian writer like Herbert Thurston. Uh, nobody was willing to, I guess they didn't want to claim that at that point, even though Shakespeare was by that point the great Protestant, you know, poet. Um, why did this change? Because this was a minority view, by the way. It's something I should mention this. It was a minority view that Shakespeare was Catholic until the late 1980s. And what happened to change all this was academic research, um, both in Shakespeare scholarship, but also in uh, the history of the English Reformation which I know very well, which is why I'm talking about it. 
<clears throat> particularly actually starts with uh, a Shakespeare scholar named Ernest Honigman, who wrote a book in 1985 called Shakespeare, The Lost Years, which he put forth a revised, um, you know, thesis about him having, you know, worked in the country, worked in Lancashire as a, as a teacher, school teacher, uh, and being a Catholic in the lost years to account for those lost years. But more than this, in the late 1980s, there was a, there was a sort of revolution in the historiography, the historical writing on the English Reformation. Up until then, you know, the, the, the sort of standard line had been that the Reformation was, generally speaking, a popular thing. People, you know, there was no major, there was only one or two major revolts against it. Most people went along with it. Most people were happy with it. Um, the old religion was dead and dying. It was decayed. People, you know, it was easily abandoned. That was the general line of things. It, and it generally, by the way, followed confessional lines. You know, Protestants wrote the histories in, in even in uh, secular academic world up until the 1980s on, um, on um, uh, the Reformation. But in the late 1980s, a uh, group of scholars, um, some of whom were Anglicans, by the way, Christopher Haig was one, I think Margaret Aston was one, I can't remember, Margaret, Margaret Aston, J.K., uh, a couple were, they were uh, Anglicans, others were Catholic, J.J. Scaresbrick, I think Alexander Walsham uh, was, uh, or is still um, Catholic, but above all, if you know any of these names, you probably don't, the biggest one's Eamon Duffy, he's an English scholar of, French, of uh, Irish extraction, Wrote a famous book in 1992 called *The Stripping of the Altars: Traditional Religion in England from like I think it's like 1100 or something, 1200 to 1550, something like that. I've read it. I can't remember the title exactly, but um, and these all these scholars, but Duffy is the one that got that has penetrated the popular consciousness, and they successfully overturned that consensus. Um, they basically established that late medieval Catholicism was more vital than that. That there were pockets that that there were pockets of there only were a couple really up in the north and then around the court uh, down near London that were uh, enthusiastic for the Reformation. Pretty much everywhere else there was there was really was not, and in fact there was and there actually was more resistance than you think, um, not from the bishops unfortunately, but popular resistance. And so they established that this had been they but they established basically was this was a real and that was the point of Duffy's book is that it was an attack on the the traditions of the people of England. It really was a top-down, state-driven destruction of the old faith. And this had an effect on Shakespeare studies, because now all of a sudden people are like, hey, we can take a second look at all this circumstantial evidence. People already knew, people have known this stuff for years. Um, and they, you know, early 1990s, Shakespeare scholars, a guy named Gary Taylor, for example, wrote an article, you know, urging scholars to take his ties, Shakespeare's ties, to uh, Catholicism more seriously. And in particular, this is, goes back to, you know, what I was mentioning here is that they took up from, from scholars like Duffy and other people is they, they took up the idea that religious identification following the Reformation uh, in, in England was much more fluid than we think of today. And the reason why is pretty simple. You had state-driven, top-down changes in religion in 1532 and 33. In uh, in sixteen uh, excuse me fifteen fifty three when it was turned back to Catholicism and fifteen fifty eight when it was turned back to Protestantism, so basically three times in you know in twenty five years maybe less if you start with the um, Edward the sixth maybe four times in twenty five years you have your religion changed altered by the government. If you grew up in those times you might you might think you might let live a decade and know what your religion is going to be, and you're supposed to by the way follow the religion of your superiors. That's what these societies are like you know, medieval early modern. And so this had a real serious effect on, you know, people's willingness to identify too too strongly with one confession or another, except for people who were the most committed, obviously. Again, there were martyrs, of course, uh, the Jesuit martyrs, Campion, Southwell, people like that on the Catholic side. And so, again, it used to be thought that, you know, by that older historical tradition that basically everybody became Protestant instantaneously, it was popular. What they've established is that it's really not until, like, the second or third generation, basically, in the 1590s, that uh, Tudor governments could be secure in the loyalty of the majority of the political nation. It took a long time, actually. And I mention this because this is something in, in the background of Shakespeare's life. He's living through this period where you, A, might not know what to think about religion, and where, you're supposed to, where your loyalties are supposed to lie. And again, we tend to think of being, you know, in our era, we live in an age where we're, 
for the time being, blessed to be able to you know, you know express your religious faith openly and disagree openly. And it was dangerous to do that back then. And so it meant there's a lot of hiding going on. Just to give you one example, uh, some Catholics in England, in order to avoid being fined for recusancy, they would take communion in, in, in the Church of England once a year to to get rid of, to avoid the fines because they could be crippling, but raise their families Catholic. Um, they were called church papists um, by the Protestant authorities, uh, and they had a devil uh, devilish time trying to find it. Actually, it was very hard to do so. If they were willing to go take that take go once a year to the parish church and take communion, there's almost nothing they could do to find them. And um, uh, in fact, uh, these church papists were they were really looked down upon by Jesuit missionaries, who of course wanted them to take an open stand and try to you know turn back the clock in the country. Uh, but a lot of people, for a lot of people, this this meant their religious identity was very fluid, uh, and this is kind of reflected in Shakespeare's plays. The fact that his his religious language he'll draw from, like in Hamlet, take for Hamlet for example, he's got okay the purgatorial thing there. On the other hand, he has um, uh, Laertes, um, Ophelia's brother, daughter, uh, son of um, uh, Polonius whom Shakespeare gets in a bite with and kills at the end, uh, he goes off to study uh, uh, study uh, at, at university. Where? In Wittenberg. Where is Wittenberg? Wittenberg, of course, was the, uh, the, uh, the University of Martin Luther. And so in these plays, he's playing with all this stuff. And in fact, Shakespeare in his plays never really, he never uses these religious illusions for their own sake. It's either A, to do something with the character, or to drive the play along. It's always subordinated to the dramatic content of what he's doing. And in fact, a lot of people must have seen, not understood, you know, that certain aspects of the old and new faith were incompatible. And uh, besides, you know, people from the old faith hiding it. I mean, just to give you an idea, to give you two examples, or one big example, I study the history of the Restoration period. And in the Restoration, there was a, there was a, um, a brief persecution of Catholics in 1678, 79, 80, 81, I should say, um, during what's called the Popish Plot. There was a, a fictitious plot that somebody made up for reasons I won't go into here, um, claiming that Catholics were trying to kill the King of England. So a bunch of priests were arrested, put on trial, they were executed, about two dozen of them were executed. Another dozen or so died uh, in prison. But the point is, this um, in this um, episode where all this stuff happened, most of the executions took place in London, but a few took place in the counties outside of London. And the attitudes toward Catholics there were very different than London. London, they were very suspicious of Catholics for a variety of reasons. But in the countryside, just to give you an example, um, one historian records that one of these priests who was convicted in 1679 of treason and, and uh, executed... If you don't know how things went back then, when you're executed for treason, you're supposed to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, which means you're supposed to be uh, you're supposed to be hanged until you're almost dead. And they take you down, they disembowel you, <laughs> you're drawn out, you're strung out. And then you then you have your limbs cut up, you're quartered, cut into quarters, and the different body parts are sent in different parts of the country. It's, it's to make an example out of you and and deter anybody from from committing treason again. Well. In one town called Monmouth, on the border with Wales in the western part of England, the sheriff there delayed the tr the execution as long as he could. The day of the execution there, he refused to show up. When they did hold the execution, the priest was hanged, but the crowd was so distraught, they went, and the crowd's all mostly Protestant, by the way, this is the point, led by the one of the deputy sheriffs, took the body of the of the priest as he was hanging, held him there until he died so he couldn't be disemboweled alive, took his body, and then went and buried it in the local Church of England parish, churchyard. And apparently most of these priests who died uh, in this 1678 scandal I'm talking about here were actually buried in Protestant churchyards. Um, does this mean they were really Catholics? Does it, again, the point is, like you would think that would be a, a, a big no-no in a period where there's so much conflict— Again, things on the ground were very fluid for a lot of people, unless they were dyed-in-the-wool people willing to get martyred in a lot of periods. This is a much later period I'm talking about, which is very different. So, so you have this as being something that scholars really reflect and talk about a lot. And, um, and so this kind of gets into a lot of their scholarship. I mentioned um, 
earlier about this, this, just the change of like academic scholarship. It's a reaction, of course, against that dominant Protestant narrative. It's also related, of course, to the de- decline of Protestantism in, in the English-speaking world, especially in England. And so you had this new taste among scholars for making canonical authors into subversive figures. You actually have Richard Wilson, who was a scholar who pushed who pushed this, you know, Shakespeare's a Catholic thesis very far, basically tried to, basically tried to insinuate he was working with the Jesuits. Uh, in fact, I think literally at one point he refers to the Jesuit, like, I think it refers to him as a Jesuit terrorist, maybe overdoing it, but, like, he basically wanted to associate him with the most radical people <laughs> in the in, uh, 16th century English Catholicism. And so this is part, my point is this is related to, to scholarly fads, which you shouldn't take a lot seriously. By the way, the whole idea is silly. Well, Wilson's idea is not, not true. <laughs> I put it out there just to see where the scholarship came from. And again, as I mentioned before, Catholics had earlier speculated that Shakespeare was a papist, but this, this shift in the way scholars viewed him got into general circulation in the late 1990s, and especially in the 2000s. Um, probably two people more than anybody else got this into popular consciousness. One is Lady Claire Asquith, it's a British author. Actually, they're both British authors, but Lady Claire Asquith wrote a book in 2006, seven, called Shadow Play in which he wrote um, a, wor- a book arguing that Shakespeare's plays are basically written in code, that the Catholic stuff in there is a code for other, I guess, clandestine Catholic circles in England. And apparently she read like read them like they were allegories for something, I guess. I haven't read the book. The review, and it's interesting, the reviews of it were mostly negative. There were a few people who took it seriously, but most Shakespeare callers were like, they hated the book. Uh, the reason why is like, it's a neat idea. I'd actually like to read the book just to see how far you could take that thesis. Um, again, it's possible. Lady, Lady Asquith actually based her idea off of um, Soviet-era dissidents who did that, who in literature actually would write in code for other dissidents, which... You know what? It's it's I I you know it, it, on the face of it, it's not totally implausible. But I, we'd have no evidence anybody actually did this in the 16th century. I think I want to say uh, for the most part, Shakespeare was the first one to do it. And it'd be an odd way to do it, by the way. It's one thing to write letters in code, private letters, because they'd be open up and read too. But in 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 public plays where everybody can hear it, it'd be kind of a weird thing. But uh, that's one book. The other several books I think the guy wrote, but he's the one pushing this most is Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce has a good story. He's a uh, former convict, I think, had a real rough life, converted to Catholicism. He's written about literature and stuff like this in Catholic uh, media uh, in many, many books. Um, he's pushed this really hard. Um, and the funny thing is, it's, 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 I'm, 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 I'm chuckling because this stuff you know, goes from the academy, gets into the Catholic world. Uh, he published a book, I can't remember the name of it, in 2008, and... Um, Robert Miola, who is a he's a Catholic, he's a passing Catholic, and a and a Shakespeare scholar. I actually read one of his books when I was in graduate school. Uh, wrote a review of this book, of Pierce's book in two thousand eight, for the uh, journal First Things. The, it's kind of ecumenical, but run by Catholics. It's kind of like you know, ecumenical, but run by Papists, uh, effectively. Anyway, but you should go find this on the internet because it's worth reading, just because. Um, Boy, he hated Pierce's book. <laughs> I mean, he ripped him a new one. It was, it was uncalled for. I have to say, it was really, it was really uncharitable. I mean, I laughed. <laughs> I laughed while reading it because he was right. Because yeah, Pierce, if that's what Pierce is pushing, then he shouldn't be pushing it. Because uh, Pierce goes way like he takes that evidence right. All the evidence I mentioned right. There's some circumstantial evidence for Shakespeare being a Catholic. But like as I said before, none of it's really dispositive. None of it can be clinched the care, clinched the idea one way or the other. And there was a back and forth. They had an exchange, and it didn't really solve anything. And these things never do. But it just shows you just how these things, you know, come into this matter. And I, and again, just to go through this and clear the, all this up, you know, my my own personal opinion on this. I guess I said this before. Um, Herbert, um, Thurst, uh, Herbert Thurston in 1912 said this, there's really no way to settle this matter about his personal faith. We just don't know what he himself believed. And we're probably never going to, I won't say probably never, but it, unless some new evidence turns up, it's just no way of knowing. And, um, you know, my own take on what he did, to me, he was clearly a conformist. He had to have conformed. He had to have taken communion in the Church of England, to me. 
that seems clear. And you basically have two options with that. If you, once you take that as my starting point, and I do, you basically have two other options. One is that he was a church papist who was raising his kids Catholic behind behind the scenes, or he was merely someone who was, you know, conformed to the Church of England, was okay with it, but still sympathized with Catholics. That part seems pretty clear to me, that he knew people who were Catholic, probably sympathized with them. And um, look, it's still perfectly fine to believe he had he was a Catholic in his personal beliefs. No reason you can't. The evidence can support that. It's just that it's equivocal. You can't go and say it's definitively proved, it's fact, it's truth, because those things, that's not thats not right. <laughs> uh, don't go beyond the evidence. Um, don't believe in, th- again, if you believe it, hey, just say, I believe it, because that's fine. And by the way, it's a pious thing to want him to be Catholic, because you, know, you want him to be saved. You believe the Catholic faith is true, you believe the Catholic Church is the true church, that's good. But I think sometimes we get, you know, figures like like Shakespeare, you know, we want to fill in the gaps uh, with his life. We, we want to think that he was this this dangerous, you know, because he was such a brilliant playwright, right? He wrote these plays that are still relevant and he's great and all this other stuff. We try to imagine that he's this, you know, especially the Catholic thing for a lot of people who aren't Catholic makes him sound kind of like, you know, ooh, dangerous and sexy and all this stuff and one of my pet theories about Shakespeare is that he was the most boring man in the universe. Remember those Dos Equis commercials? You know, the most interesting man in the world. My my theory is that, like, other than being the most god, having this godlike talent, which he developed, it took him a long time. You know, he was in London for several years before he caught on. They had to write a lot of plays too. He worked really hard, and so, you know, through hard work, he made himself into the greatest playwright ever. But other than that, my theory is he's just totally nondescript. <laughs> And totally boring. I, I, look, why wouldn't we have more anecdotes about the guy if he was a really charismatic person? We don't. Uh, we would have left more of a mark. He just worked really hard. He like he liked money. He definitely liked money. Uh, he was he was he was shrewd like his father was. His father was a good businessman. He was a good businessman. Um, they both, you know, Shakespeare was a social striver. He wanted to move up in the world, make money, got him buy himself a coat of arms, come up gentleman, which he did. He reminds me, by the way, if, just to compare him and why I take the line I do, my opinion, he reminds me uh, of someone later, contemporary, um, who lived longer than he did, but followed a similar path, and that's John Donne, the poet John Donne. He's also, he's also an Anglican clergyman, but um, he was born into a Catholic family in Wales, and his family, he had Jesuits in his family who'd been martyred, and he was actually kind of, there's some, you know, probably some occluded guilt about this in his writings. But he wanted to move up in the world. And that's probably, I think that's, I think that's what happened with Shakespeare. Again, have no idea, but that's my, that's my thought about all this. Uh, I will say, by the way, that in terms of this, there is an argument people have made that even though you can't say about his personal faith that it's Catholic, that his work reflects Catholic habits of thought, or Catholic modes of thought. This I find much more plausible. I won't go into it here. But people have made the argument, and by the way, he's familiar with Catholic you know, beliefs in a way that he had to have known it personally. Like either he grew up in it and left, or he, had, he grew up around friends who were Catholic in Stratford-upon-Avon. That has to be true, because it's too, it's too well done in his plays. Because again, it's hard to stress this. You would, get, you would get brownie points on the Elizabethan stage for engaging in anti-Catholic you know, satire. It was a good thing to do. He never does it. And so he he knows it to a certain degree, at least in my thinking, from the inside somehow. And there have been some interesting work on this stuff. And you can find, the, probably, by the way, probably the most careful scholar who makes the argument for uh, for Shakespeare as a Catholic, um, besides Honigman, I'm going to mention him, is Father Peter Millward, is a Jesuit. He's done this for years. You can look at his books. There's a bunch of them, a bunch of articles. Um, and that, and you're on much safer ground. But Because, again, you're in this period where all these ideas are still in the air, uh, the Tudor state did not have the power to suppress all these ideas. And so um, just wasn't, it wasn't wealthy or, or, or powerful enough to do that. And so, yeah, there's definitely a lot of Catholic attitudes floating around. I mentioned, by the way, earlier, you know, Shakespeare in his sonnet, you know, like he bare ruin choirs. He obviously sympathizes with that. You know, why isn't that evidence of his Catholicism? Well, it could be. The reason why it's equivocal to go back to that is there are a lot of Anglicans, people who are members of the Church of England, in his lifetime and after, and still today, who 
are okay with the Reformation. They didn't like the way it happened. They regret the violence. They regret the closing the monasteries, violent, a lot of this stuff. Um, there are lots of other Anglicans who feel the same way, and that's a share. That's not a. That's a shared attitude between some of these, again, Anglicans and and Catholics. You know, gentry Catholics who survived the Reformation, and so it's not a dividing line that you can draw brightly, which is one of the reasons why you can't say he's definitely Catholic. Uh, and in the end, I, I'm going to leave Honigman with the last word here because I think he has the best summation of like the most reasonable take on, okay, if you're going to take this thesis seriously, what should you say? I'll read, it, read this. I'm quoting from Ernest Honigman, a review of another book he, uh, he reviewed. So, uh, thus says Honigman, quote, In such a dangerous world, it would not be too surprising if Shakespeare brought up as a Catholic, the first child of John and Mary Shakespeare, um, was baptized in the reign of Queen Mary, not Shakespeare, not William Shakespeare, but one of his, his siblings. It would not be um, uh, surprising if he remained a church papist or under, uh, underground Catholic in later years, or at least retained many Catholic friends and sympathized with their difficulties, just as he understood the difficulties of Jews, Moors, North American Indians, and other minorities. We must not think of Shakespeare's Catholicism as an established fact, but equally it would be a mistake to rule it out as an impossibility." Unquote. <clears throat> so, okay, so that's that that's my take on the actual issue. One last thing to have to mention about all this is like, does this actually matter that much? Well, first of all, I love Shakespeare, so it matters to me, so I did this, but for 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 Catholicism, I do this I do this podcast partly to give, you know, good, useful information to people who for apologetic reasons. And I think one of the things about about Shakespeare is that we've kind of taken to him because he is this iconic figure, this unassailable figure. I, I say unassailable, somebody's going to try to cancel him pretty soon. They have to, right? He's white, all other stuff. So I don't know. We'll see. But he, he's this unassailable figure. You want to have him on your side because we know that culture matters, right? One of the reasons I was attracted to the faith in the first place, you've heard my other um, episode, my, my conversion story, the, the culture of, uh, of, of Catholicism is very attractive to me, and the fact that it was impressive and all that other stuff. And that can be important. However, sometimes I think people, again, I'm, I'm criticizing the popular presentation of the <laughs> Shakespeare as a Catholic thesis. They get into what I, I want to call apologetics bingo. Apologetics bingo is the idea, if we can just line up like all these icons on the Catholic side, right? You have like the in bingo, you have the, the free spot in the middle. We get, like, on one side, we get Shakespeare, Dante, and the other 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 side, we get, like, I don't know, Mozart and Beethoven. You know, bingo. We win. Protestants have to become Catholic, right? Something like, I, I, we, nobody says that, but they kind of act like it. And, of course, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Um, you know, uh, the truth of the faith doesn't depend on whether or not, you know, Shakespeare was Catholic or not. And it, that's why it's important not to go beyond the evidence here and say, well, he was definitely Catholic, and be careful about that. Because, you know, truth is more important than winning the argument or, or even telling a good story, by the way. Sometimes they are the same thing. But And, you know, and a lot of this, by the way, has to do with something more general. It's not, not a Catholic affliction, but it's the need to fill in gaps, right? We just don't know anything about Shakespeare. We know much more about Dante Alighieri, who lived in the 1300s. Whereas we know nothing about Shakespeare. And um, just to give you a, an example of this, during the civil wars of England in the 1640s, you had this fight between King Charles I and his parliament. His parliament won. The parliament you know, put him on trial for war crimes and executed him. And the guy that was most responsible for that was uh, Oliver Cromwell, who was a general, the parliamentarian, was the leader of the army. The army basically took over in a coup in 1648 and put the, the king on trial. They're the ones that push for that. I mention that because, uh, you know, Charles I is he's beheaded. He becomes a martyr to people, to conservative Anglicans to this day, actually. The point is, thing is, Charles I and Cromwell almost never met. There was no, there was no meeting where Cromwell was, conf you know, Charles I was confronted by his persecutor, Cromwell. I mention this because years later, in the 17, uh, 1700s, the uh, poet Alexander Pope, who was Catholic, um, told a story about Charles I and Oliver Cromwell that after Charles I had been executed, Oliver Cromwell walked into the... Because they had his body, they, you know, sewed his head back on and put him in a coffin. They were waiting to bury him. Supposedly by torchlight, you know, Cromwell went in to see his 
lifted the torch light up to his face and muttered something about cruel necessity. Right? This never happened. <laughs> it's totally apocryphal. The point is, we we feel the need as as you know students of history would love a good story. We want to fill in the gaps, right? You know, Charles the first had to meet his destroyer at some point. And the thing is, history doesn't work like that. Uh, doesn't doesn't have to doesn't have to make sense, right? This is, this is Mark Twain, like his his uh, his famous saying: "Truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, truth uh, uh, fiction, fiction is obliged to keep to the facts. Truth isn't." So you had to have that thing going on in there. And again, ultimately, uh, I, I'm bringing all this not to not to not to not to put a, a damper on anybody's enthusiasm for this thesis. If you love it. Go go go! Shout out to the rooftops, and you can definitely, by the way, say that Shakespeare is influenced by Catholicism. There's no getting around that. Uh, although I did find people in, in I was going through this, doing research for this, and there are those confessional differences. I'll say this have not totally disappeared from Shakespeare's scholarship. I'll put it that way. I won't bore you with the details, but that's still there. But for the most part, nobody really denies he was influenced by Catholicism, even if we can't say for sure that he believed in it. And in any case, like I said before, uh, you know, um, what's really important here is the truth of the faith and, and not whether, you know, um, uh, Shakespeare was Catholic or not. It doesn't depend on that. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go over, overboard trying to make that case. Because besides, we got Dante. We win, right? <laughs> so anyway, that's, the, that's my little uh, episode, my little take on Shakespeare as a Catholic. Hope you enjoyed it. A little different uh, change of pace here. Be on the lookout next few weeks. Uh, gonna have some new episodes dropping, um, some stuff here and there, maybe a couple, one, two, three, maybe episodes by the end of the summer individually. Probably when the new semester starts, I will start again on the next long series. And that will be, I will start with um, the series on Latinization, the Latinization of the Eastern Rites by, uh, by, by Rome. So we'll get to that then. But be on lookout next couple of weeks for some other uh, single episodes. And again, if you love this, if you like it, you get something out of it, please tell your friends. If anybody wants to learn more about the faith and about certain topics, uh, please, you know, again, uh, 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 subscribe um, to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, like our page on, face page on Facebook. And once again, thank you, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate it. I'm recording this on the 4th of July. If you're in America, have a happy 4th of July. Take care, you guys, and God bless. Hear from me soon.